Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 336 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week, I sat down and chatted with wildlife photojournalist Morgan Heim. Morgan hails out of Astoria, Oregon, Goonies never say die, and focuses on coexistence and how human-influenced environmental change impacts wildlife. She is the founder of Neon Raven Story Labs, a storytelling and strategy platform for conservation, and in 2020, she co-launched Her Wild Vision Initiative, aimed at raising the voices of diverse women in the craft of conservation visual storytelling. Please do stick around until the very end to learn all about a quite compelling special offer from Morgan, who goes by Mo. All right, let's get to today's episode with Mo Heim. All right, Morgan Heim, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having yeah. me. <laughs> I've listened to it for a long time. You've you've been in my earbuds on many a hike with my dog uh, on many a days when I've been trying to get motivated. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And hopefully I'll get to know you a little bit better, but I feel like you're cheating now because maybe you know more about me than I know about you, but I feel like we'll, we'll uncover some, some deep, dark secrets here. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Morgan, for people who aren't familiar with you, would love you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, my, my name is Morgan Heim. Most of my friends call me Mo. And I grew up in Virginia, but I out on the coast on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, but now I live in Astoria, Oregon, and I'm a conservation filmmaker and photographer, a senior fellow with the International League of Conservation Photographers. So I basically just love to tell stories about wildlife and most importantly, how we are kind of living with them or not living with them well, but finding ways to try to coexist in better, better ways. The scientist for a little while too. (laughs) Nice. And, uh, I know you said earlier you have a dog, um, Mm -hmm. any other family members that you get to tow around the world with you? Yeah. So I am, I'm married. Um, my husband, Philip, he's a biologist and it's just my husband, my dog and I in a little house in a little town. Nice, nice, nice. Well, before we get into some of these other questions I have for you, I would love for you to tell us how the heck you got into photography. And and specifically, how did you move yourself into uh, conservation photography? It took a while. Um, I started off thinking I was going to be a marine biologist and I'll be an earl and go in submarines and listen to whales and all those things. And I, I was working for a government agency called NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, doing a lot of dam removal assessments and salmon surveys and things like that. Um, and I picked up a camera basically on my first field job when I was uh, in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I got a job working in Alaska on a salmon project, and we were in this really remote area. And so I bought this really a Canon Rebel, uh, a film Canon Rebel. And so I got, I took like a bag of slide film and negative film and pictures when we weren't doing field work. And that's how I kind of entertained myself and 
there were bears that would come to our cabin and come down to the river while we were fishing or we we were sampling the fish and I had a blast taking photos, had no idea what I was doing right or wrong. And of course, like it was nine weeks before I got back and then I didn't have any money. So it was like months of just every once in a while when I'd get some money developing a roll of film and excited about what I saw. The pictures weren't very good, but um, I was kind of hooked at that point. And so I just kept at it and at it. And then eventually I... I felt like I, I wanted to spend more time on the storytelling side than on the science side. And so um, there's some stuff that was like in the middle there. But uh, I went back to grad school eventually and did an environmental journalism degree. Oh, okay. Well, that's a that's a nice set of talents that you have in terms of understanding the biological things that you're running into while then also having a talent for telling stories and Capturing that, capturing images with a camera. <laughs> yeah, um, the two definitely complement each other really well, and I think think that there are a lot of folks that have gone into my particular kind of genre of photography with the conservation side um, that have science backgrounds. I think there's a lot of scientists out there that get really into all the parts of the stories that aren't getting told when they're out in the fields and they want to help do something to bring that more to light. And so, you know, a lot of my colleagues have some kind of science background. Not that you need to have one though. I have friends that have fine art degrees or graphic design or accounting. Like it's just completely across the board, um, the skills that people bring into this kind of photography. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes sense. Okay. Well, earlier you said you now live in Astoria, uh, Oregon. Tell us about Astoria, Oregon, and tell us who your favorite Goonies character is. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, Astoria is where Goonies was filmed. I actually live just up the street from the Goonies house. In fact, the first time I actually went to the Goonies house, um, I was Joel. I was assisting Joel Sartori, who's a who's a photographer who does this really cool project called the photo arc. And he's one of my like idols. And I hadn't gone to the Goonies house. He happened to come out to Oregon yeah. to do a shoot for the photo arc. And so we did that. And then he's like, I want to go get a photo of the Goonies house. And so that was my first time seeing it. But um, even though I walk by there almost every day, Astoria is this really kind of, quaint almost like snow globe victorian village of a town it's on a peninsula in the mouth of the columbia river and it's only about ten thousand people and it's this kind of of um a very artsy and um music and food oriented town um but it's also a very working town it has a long history with forestry and logging and commercial fishing and the town I think is at this point where it's an interesting intersection of sort of new ways of making a living and old ways of making a living and all of the good and bad the struggles and and things that come out of that and for me as a storyteller it's I've only been there for six years but it's a really really inspiring place to live and it also gets these kind of 
because it's at this convergence of mountains and ocean and river, it gets these crazy abundance abundances of wildlife, like thousands, tens of thousands of cormorants and thousands of sea lions. And there's like, you know, one elk for every person who lives in my, one elk for every seven people who live in my county. And there's so many waterfowl and bald eagles. There's a pair of bald eagles that nest in my cul-de-sac that I can see from my bedroom window, basically. And it's just very alive. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm really oh. curious now because you know you live you you live amongst uh, a lot of wildlife as you said there on the coast and I know often that the coexistence of wildlife and humans in a town like that can create some friction mm-hmm. and I'm curious kind of what that looks like for you. Yeah, um that's actually at the heart of a lot of projects that I work on. I forgot to tell you my favorite Goonies character. It's Chunk, of course. Like, oh yeah, we need. How to, could we it not be Chunk? We definitely have to cover that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. So there's definitely a healthy dose of wildlife conflict. Um, there, there's we have these really incredible salmon runs. They're endangered salmon, um, Chinook salmon especially. And so anything that threatens them or is perceived to threaten them, there are people who get upset about that. And so um, things like cormorants and sea lions, they get a lot of ire from a lot of people. Um, And so that's led to some conflicts and culling campaigns where they actually, the government comes in and shoots the cormorants. Um, It caused a collapse of the largest nesting colony of cormorants in North America and uh, mm. then that the sea lions, there's there's proposals to cull the sea lions and get special exceptions to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And um, as things too, with just even with elk, because the elk are so numerous and they've basically been squeezed into, they live in town year round now. So um, they're in people's yards, they're swimming in the ocean, they're on the beaches, they're at golf courses they're in schools they're i literally could see i can see them every day that i leave my house Uh, i I almost feel like my day is not complete if i don't see the elk at some point while i'm out running errands so people love them and some people don't and that's i feel like one of my callings for trying to be a participant in my own community and and a steward of of my own backyard and trying to explore these subjects and document them and and hopefully help people understand them a bit better and maybe find different ways of grappling with the dynamics that are there yeah 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 and i'm I'm wondering so you it sounds like you've had lots of opportunities to make photographs of these animals and their habitat and i'm sh- I'm guessing there's some pretty amazing images you've been able to create, but I'm also wondering if you've found an opportunity to share those images with a target audience that might, you know, the people who are like, I don't like the elk, I don't like the sea lions, I don't like the cormorants. Have you ever been able to break through with those individuals through photography Mm. or through storytelling in photography? Yeah. Um... So 
I think that like with like with the cormorants, for example, this there's been a photo essay that's run in Audubon so far, and then I've done a couple of presentations locally, and I've never had anyone react badly. Um, but my uh, the audiences might be more kind of in favor of of those animals to start with. I would say that one of the times where I did have some good experience with kind of like the other side of the issue, I always do try to document the other side. So even with the cormorants, like I was talking with some of my contacts I made through, one was through a guy who admitted to killing them illegally. Um, And so I go talk to those folks. But there was a a project that I worked on on Lassen Wolves in Northern California. And as part of that, I hung out with some ranchers and very conservative ranchers who were convinced the government was releasing wolves on their land in secret. And I just had fun with them. Um, We, it's, it, I find that most of my interactions with those groups happen directly in the field in the moment because I try to cover their sides of the story as well. And so it's about going in and, and not really trying to challenge them too much. It's more about being curious about why they feel the way that they do. And then sometimes presenting mm-hmm. counterpoints though, like, you know, with the, with the wolf conspiracy, you know, these are smart, they're smart people, but they get latched onto some ideas. And, and so they were telling me about this crate that was, brought in in secret and left on their land and that they think it was the government that brought wolves across state lines onto their and released wolves on their property and the crates, what makes them think that? And I'm like, so you think that they smuggled a wolf all this way, but then decided to leave the crate where you could find it. And he was like, a really good point. (laughs) And so I don't know if I like, convinced them not to believe in that conspiracy anymore, but it, it did at least like, oh, okay. There, I didn't make him feel bad or anything. I was just like, but what? why would they leave the crate there for you to find? <laughs> and, and, you know, later that day, I'm like, we're riding, I'm riding around. He's like driving me around on a four-wheeler, showing me the property, and they're showing me all the things that they're doing to try to like protect their cattle from the wolves that are non-lethal methods. So it's like, here are people who aren't really in favor of the wolves, but they're still doing things to try to coexist in a a more peaceful way. And I got to give them props for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a tough one. I, I, I feel like I would have a hard time being unbiased in my approach to those situations. Although I've, encountered people like that pretty regularly here in Colorado and I have to just remind myself to you know stay calm and just you know like you said like be curious and listen to them and try to understand their point of view and gain their trust a little bit and hopefully you can try to tell another part of the story for them while sharing their part of the story with the rest of the world so I don't know if you can do much better than that (laughs) Yeah, I think I it's a constant constantly learning on trying on how to navigate these dynamics better and so far the best method I've found for most cases has been that curiosity and 
always trying to answer that question of what is life like for you? You know, whether you're a wolf or a rancher or a biologist or a tree hugger, like I just, I want to know what life is like for you. And it doesn't mean leaving your own take on the issue on the table necessarily. I'll even tell people like, yeah, you know, I think cormorants are really cool. And, uh, but I, I do see that there are things about them that would pop some people crazy. So I want to know about that. Um, and I think by being open about where I come from, but in a way that is not trying to tear someone else down at the same time has usually worked well. Who knows? There may be, there may be times or occasions where there's something or someone who's behaving in such a way where it's like, no, you don't get you don't get understanding because what you're the way you're behaving is awful, <laughs> you know. Totally. Yeah. Well, I know there's probably a lot of people listening who would love to get into this type of photography and I'm curious what you might have to offer for people that are interested in doing this type of work. Like where, where can they find locations? Um, where can they find stories? Uh, and maybe what are some of the potential benefits um, for our photography by doing so? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you can literally find some sort of environmental or conservation story anywhere. Uh, stories are everywhere. I think that's one of the big, big things is starting to train your brain to be able to find and see the stories and you don't have to be super complicated about it um you know it can literally start with something like the pigeons uh that you see in the the town square every day uh there are crazy cool stories with these animals that often get overlooked because we see them every day and there's actually a lot of amazing things about them about uh learning about their behavior and how they're good at living in urban environments, things like that. So I really recommend looking locally because you want to have lots of opportunities to practice and also to apply the work and um, be able to give yourself milestones that you can give yourself windows of time to work on, but doesn't require you raising a huge budget to like travel across the world. The biggest thing you need if you are working on a local project is discipline. And I think the best way to tackle those local projects is to give yourself uh, deadlines. So you're going to say like, okay, this month I'm going to work on this project for a week or on two weekends. And I want to work on these aspects. I do that with the cormorants. And the cormorants really guide guide my schedule because it's like, from like March until August and so if I want to work on them I have to but then or else I have to wait a whole other year and so the animals give you those deadlines and then so let's run with the cormorant thing I mean you said Mm -hmm. if you want to work on them so maybe walk us through what that looks like in terms of the photography involved, the the journalism aspect involved, the um, like how you're conceptualizing what it is you actually want to say with your photographs. Like walk us through that kind of process. Okay. 
I'll do my best. So with Cormorant's this issue with the culling that I talked about, and it caused a colony collapse, and the birds basically fled the island that they'd been nesting on, and a large number of them started nesting on a bridge right in the middle of downtown. And so I think scientists are really important for just learning to understand different issues and dynamics and learn about what field work is going on. So I look up the researchers who are studying cormorants in my area, and that's not too hard to find. You know, there's Oregon State University. I just start, you know, searching for people who are working on the wildlife in my town. And I write them emails uh, telling them that I'm pursuing a project and would just love to talk with them and learn some more information uh, about what's going on. And that usually invariably leads to then finding opportunities to go in the field with them when they do surveys. Um, I think about pictures that I want to make and I start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do in order to make that happen? So I wanted to put time-lapse on the bridge and I just asked the scientists, like, would that be useful potential information for them or but who do I need to talk to about that? Or I'm like, I look up, okay, the bridge is managed by the Oregon Department of Transportation. So I reach out, I reach out to the PR person at ODOT and I tell them what I want to do. And they're like, no one has ever raised this kind of question with us before. We <laughs> have no process for this. So they kind of made it up, but I just keep going, okay, you know, tell me what we need to do now. And then I figure out, how to make partnerships happen and kind of continuing to jump through those hoops and make the plans and get the permits and stuff happens that you wouldn't believe. And then once you kind of get a little bit of a foot in the door, uh, other people want to help open those doors too. So I've used Facebook before. I wanted to just like find out from people, uh, anyone who's got stories about cormorants, good or bad, and uh, there, so I go into my community Facebook group for my town and I pose the question and then people write me back and then it goes to direct message. And then I'm meeting a, the guy who runs security down at the port of Astoria and I find out he used to work in the fish hatcheries and then he connects me with the fish hatchery workers. So it's all these like just daisy chaining all these contacts together and you can't do it all, you know, at once, but in the course of like basically two summers, I actually got a lot done and got to the point where I was climbing underneath the bridge with the bridge engineers as they're cleaning cormorant guano off of the underside of it. And we're like 150 feet above the mouth of the Columbia, which is known as the graveyard of the Pacific. So it's, it's really amazing what can kind of come together. And I wasn't on assignment. It's all self-funded and uh, it was just something that I started doing and people were like, Oh, you, you actually mean it. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's good. That was good. I have a whole bunch of other questions now. So <laughs> it sounds like you, you kind of went into it, you know, with an open mind, like, Oh, I think there's a story here, but I don't really know all the angles or all like everything that might be related to this. So like, I'm just going to start branching out. And then it kind of starts to take you on a little bit of a wild goose chase, no pun intended. 
And then um, I'm curious then after you've kind of formulated, okay, go, okay, I have a story to tell now and I've got images and I've got, you know, I've got two years of work that I've poured into this. What is then the product? What is the, who's the customer? Who, like, what are you trying to create out of that effort? Yeah. So I will say that it's not really, it's exploratory for sure, but it's still very intentional. So it's not a wild goose chase. It's a, it's, I know (laughs) that there's a, an issue unfolding and then it's going to have these different sides to it, but knowing how I get into those different sides is where I have to do the exploring, you know, and finding the right people. Um, And things will Mm -hmm. come up that will help illustrate a point. But I know that I have like at least a basic, like I need to get footage of the birds on the bridge. I need to get footage of people like cleaning up the mess that the birds leave behind. I need to get footage of the people who are trying to adapt their work strategies with the hatcheries so that the cormorants don't eat all the salmon that they've just spent, you know, two years getting to this stage. So I have at least chunks in my mind of like different parts of the story that I know are going to be really important, but I remain open to things that I learn. And then I also find people who I have to find those people who are going to help me illustrate those sides of the story. So it's a little bit of what you said and also the opposite of what you said. So um, it, no, that, it's definitely a, a, a bit of a journey. Um so the, the outlet, you know, I have a variety of outlets in mind. So one was definitely to get some sort of magazine feature and actually want to um, pitch some more stories about this issue because it's not done yet. And so done some work with a wildlife rescue center that has an ambassador bird that's a cormorant. And so I provide them with images. I've made a, a film for them starring her, a bird named Cormie. Cormie the Cormorant. And so I help them with their fundraising. And then on the personal side, I'm I'm working on creating kind of like a platform where a bunch of these wildlife coexistence stories can live together. And the idea is that it will be a place that uh, groups that are working on this issue could then have access to special hidden galleries where they can download media assets that they can use uh, in their communications efforts to help with the outreach. Um, But I've even supplied images to scientists or even, even a member of wildlife services who is hazing the birds off the bridge. He's one of those people that's like on the other side of the issue from what I would normally be on. Like they're normally the agents agency that calls the birds, but He's was he was basically like they're hazing the birds off a section of the bridge so that the engineers can clean this really corrosive guano off the bridge so that the bridge stays safe for people, and they're using non lethal uh, non lethal methods this time. So I took he let me photograph him doing this hazing and he ended up using some of my pictures and presentations to show how that non-lethal effort was being effective at giving them the wiggle room that they needed so that they could clean the bridge and leave most of the birds alone. I don't know. At least that's not killing, killing the birds and most of them are still able to nest. And I want to encourage non-lethal means of coexistence, you know? 
Right. And then I guess the next piece of the puzzle that I'm not totally un- totally sure how to unlock is, you know, once you've kind of established that this is the work you want to do and you've got a couple of these projects under your belt, how do you then find, not to give away your secrets, but how do you then find paid work in this mm-hmm. field? <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard. I was just talking with a friend the other day. It's like we're working our patooties off and we're still just like struggling to pay the mortgage every month. And But it's like we can't take on any more work because it's literally it's so much work. It takes time for sure. And I think that unless you are independently wealthy or have a partner who can support you, don't quit the one job, you know save up first um, or find again, local projects that you can work on in between your regular job to build up that project portfolio and then do things like get into the community. I, I, I think the biggest thing is growing your network and um, that takes time. It just does. I mean, I think it happens a lot faster now for a lot of people than it did. I mean, it took me like, there were people that editors that I was, I would see once or twice a year at different events or I I got to know and they became friends and I knew them for like seven years before I worked for them. And now I have this very, very strong, solid network of editors who they're yes, my my editors, but they're also my friends, and I can call them up anytime, and they know they can rely on me. And so, if they have an assignment where they need someone that, um, and especially last minute, they'll you know they might be like, "Hey Mo, are you available?" And if I am, I do it, and I they know I can do the job for them. And so that's good that you can kind of build up that reputation. So you need to have patience, but. But getting yourself to like conferences mm. and festivals, make yourself useful at them too. Like, don't go in trying to pitch yourself and be like, please hire me or look at my work. I mean, go do portfolio reviews for sure, but just be in the community. Be curious, be someone that they want to hang out with, and go in with the expectation that you're w- wanting to learn and also wanting to help. So, I have more of an introverted personality even though I might not seem it and I do better when I have a job to do so I would volunteer to do things and having a volunteer gig helps pay your way to some of these conferences and also makes you useful and then the people who are there that are like the presenters and things you get to hang out with them and they want to hang out with you and it it all you know it might take a little while to build up the relationships, but it's, it plants the seeds for that. And it does it without it feeling like you're trying to sell yourself, you know, and they'll want to look at your work. Definitely get right. portfolio reviews whenever you can, um, because that's the best way to learn and grow and also start to get on the radar of people. I love it. That all makes perfect sense. Okay. All right, well, let's shift gears a little bit here. Tell me about the quote-unquote the should that floats through <laughs> your head <laughs> and how have you found a way around around these and maybe mm-hmm. explain what, what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah. So 
I think it's very easy. I definitely subscribe to the should. So you should approach a story this way. You should shoot this way. You should make these photographs if you want to uh, take the right ones for a story. And I think that can really get in your way a lot because you get in your brain instead of in your heart and you're not letting your eyes become your eyes. You're basically becoming a photographer of a user's manual and nobody wants to read those. Nobody does. So uh, why would they want to look at a picture version of it? You know? So, and it also doesn't really get to the heart of a lot of these (laughs) issues either, you know? So um, I think that a lot of conservation photographers are photojournalists or they have that kind of documentary style, but there are so many different ways to be a conservation photographer. It's not about your approach to the photography necessarily. It's more about what you do with the photography afterwards. And so you, you could be a fashion photographer. You could be a portrait photographer. You could be a landscape or, you know, pure nature photographer. And it's how you're using those pictures afterwards that then turns that into conservation photography. So don't think you have to fit a particular mold to participate in this field if it's something that you're interested in. In fact, the field could probably use some fresher, you know, approaches to that storytelling. Even commercial commercial photographers, they can be a conservation photographer. That's one should that should go out the window. Um, the other is, yes, it's important to know, like, that you want to get establishing shots or portraits or detail shots if you're wanting to tell kind of like that documentary style, but don't get so wrapped up in the should that the only thing you're photographing are these very sterile images. Even if they're technically good, they're just boring or you don't feel anything. So I like to be a little bit, be a little bit sloppy, you know, if you want to, or find those moments that you photograph in between, you know, it's not them collecting the data. It's like what they're doing before or after, or like when they're goofing around or when they're exhausted at the end of the day, that's where the story and the heart comes in. Just really be trying, like, I like to think about what it's like to be them and I want to show that. So I guess that's, that's in danger of being a should, Uh, (laughs) but basically just allow yourself (laughs) to, to be, to be yourself when you're, when you're making those photos so that, you are more receptive then in return to whatever is being given to you. Yeah. And I feel like that can apply to lots of different aspects of photography. I'm just thinking like landscape photography. There's so many shoulds that we hear all the time. Like, Oh, everything has to be sharp front to back. And it's like, "Mm, does it though? I don't think that's Mm -hmm. necessarily true all the time. Uh, You know, people always say things like, Oh, you know, you have to, you know, you have to have rule of thirds or you have to, you can't have things centered in the middle of the image. It's like, "Mm, sometimes it works better. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, get rid of all those preconceptions and throw them away. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it's really, you get out of your own way at that point, you know? Um, I think a lot of us want to be like the good student and get the A on the paper, but Lots of times 
I think it's good to learn like rules and how to do things. And it's like, okay, I know that now, but now that I know that, like, let's have some fun and uh, stop approaching it so technically. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Kind of related to this, I would love for you to talk a little bit about limitations and talk a little bit about how limitations have improved your skills as a photographer. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's like this like study that's like when you have too much choice on how to like if you go to a store and go shopping and there's like one one store that sells like three kinds of mustard and an, another store that sells like 30 kinds of mustard. There's this experiment where it's like people will buy a mustard from the place that only has three, but they won't buy anything from the place that has all these like gourmet variety mustards because they get overwhelmed by choice. Right. And so the same thing can happen in photography where you've just got so many possibilities and you don't know what direction to go in or uh, how you want to shoot something. And so if, if you are, I have found when I've had situations where it's really, really limited in how you can photograph something, you start to get very creative on how to then solve that problem. And it can lead to really exciting discoveries on in the way that you want to see. And one example, I guess, would be I wanted to make these portraits of roadkill. And I was really remind I was I was seeing all the roadside memorials that people leave when people they, they care about are hurt or die in car accidents. And I was thinking how I wanted to make beautiful portraits of roadkill. And so I was going to get flowers and I, I, when I found an animal, I would, I would give them a memorial wreath, but it had to be photographed at night. And, but then you need artificial light, but you can't use flash because it's just so harsh and, it, and you're right against the ground. And it just seems like not the right way to approach it. That would either be respectful to the animal. And so you're like, okay, well, I'm going to use um, a little, I used a flashlight and an orange dog poop bag on my first portrait. And I light painted the light onto the deer and, you know, I was really limited in how I could approach that photograph. Um, I didn't use fancy equipment or anything. And so I found, I found unconventional means to, to kind of make this portrait. And then that picture ended up being awarded in Wildlife Photographer of the Year and shown at the World Economic Forum in a projection display. And it's like, it's, wow. yeah, I mean, you can do great things with, with very little it, just by being creative and so look at the look at the things of okay there's all these things you can't do but what's the one thing you can do and it's going to be something out outside the box of how you would normally approach making the photograph most of the time yeah i think you had mentioned that you started using infrared photography for this for a similar reason yes yeah um <clears throat> that was that was an assignment for Audubon and, you know, we're concerned about how flash could affect owls, especially at night when they're flying through dense forests. And so, but I have to photograph at night. So that means I need some sort of light source. 
So I proposed using infrared photography, but it's not just you set up a camera trap and the animal comes to it. I'm actually doing photojournalism. So I had to, I talked with some friends and had to really think about like, okay, how do you approach this? And basically it's like, okay, I rented an, uh, a mirrorless, a Sony mirrorless camera that had been converted to infrared. I got a regular strobe and I bought uh, a gel that is like a red gel that only passes the the high end of the wavelength spectrum through. So it's I taped that to the front of the strobe and I got a, an, an infrared flashlight for like 30 bucks from like a hunting outfitter and I have to use a friend who comes with me and they basically pre-light my subject using that flash. I can only see what I'm doing through the viewfinder or the LCD of the camera. Otherwise it just looks like pitch black out. And when I'm ready to go, I say, okay. And I'm basically just waiting for the moment to happen and hope that things don't change too much. And then the, my assistant also had the strobe ready. And so took the picture and um, I had to be very slow and deliberate and had to learn from the biologist exactly what the process was like. And basically they would get into position to whatever part of the project that they were working on and I'd kind of get pre-composed on them. And, and, you know, you're like looking at shadows amid, amid shadows and hoping you get something, but it, it really ended up being a very, excellent way to slow myself down, think differently, mm-hmm. um, be more deliberate. And it was kind of crazy. The, the work that came out of that project um, is some of my best. And I think that it was one of those life experiences that got me out of a plateau and, and made me a student of photography again. And now it's, you know, it's taking me in new directions. Yeah, I love that. I for a long time I thought I mean I didn't feel like I knew everything that had to, you know, for night photography, but then I did a I did, I did a little workshop with a friend of mine um and he was like, "You got to watch this video I made. Um I teach you everything." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And I was like, "Ah, oh, I actually learned a lot of stuff that I never even <laughs> thought of before." So it's like, yeah, you can still learn stuff even if you've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, it's just Sometimes you have to set up, set yourself up for failure so that you can overcome a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Make yourself a student again. It's a, and that makes you feel young again too. So that's a, that's another benefit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we could all use that. <laughs> all right. Well, you talked a little bit about this already, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how um, we as wildlife and nature photographers can find more candid moments in nature and why should we seek those out? So I think that who you are comes out the most when you're not thinking about being photographed because you're just being you. You're just living life, whether you're an animal or a human, you know, the greatest compliment you can get is if an animal gets so comfortable in your presence that they're basically ignoring you. And then you get the glances, you know, you get the, the grizzly mom with her cub and the cub is 
whining at her because it wants that razor clam and she's basically like no you're being annoying and (laughs) (laughs) you need to wait your turn and that's maybe anthropomorphizing too much but the thing is is you see like movements and eyes or gestures and they're not paying attention to you they're paying attention to each other or to other things in their environment and so you learn a lot more about them when you get to experience wildlife that way it's the same thing with people you know the human behind the scientists it's the the human behind just the person who's on the hike you you could take a picture of them hiking but something that's probably more interesting is like once they have kind of gotten to that top of the mountain and they're just like relaxing and you think okay well all the action's done but actually that's when they reach over and they hug the person the friend that came with them or they start thinking about you know, something that happened in their life that uh, this hike has like opened up in them and the tears come in their eyes, you know, or they find peace. So you're looking Mm -hmm. for those moments in between. And I I think that's where the real heart of all these stories come into. And that's where you have the, the chance to move beyond information and get into values. And it increases the likelihood that someone who has a different opinion than you on an issue might share same value with you though about just trying to survive or do your job every day or or raise your kids or get all your work done and there are things that you find common ground in that aren't just like the context within the story that's where it's happening you know that's more shareable so uh, I think by having those candid moments you you get at those things that are more relatable to more people yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense, and I think your answer to that question is a very good primer for my next question and area of topic. So recently, I got a lot of questions from listeners around or asking for like wildlife image critique and like how to become a better wildlife photographer and like maybe some actionable tips in terms of like self critique around okay, how do you know if your wildlife image is any good? And I'm not a wildlife photographer myself, not really, although I've dabbled, right? I would love to answer the questions myself, but I feel like you are much more well-equipped to provide some tips to people to be able to start to look at their images and find things to improve with their wildlife photos. So what, what, what ideas do you have? Oh, man, it's so varied. I mean, there are there are definitely compositional things that help, like, you know, are their legs cut off? You know, you don't want to amputate legs at, at yeah. joints. Don't amputate. Um, don't cut off the feet. You know, don't, you know, make sure that, that you've, you know, you can have some foreground in the in the picture that the legs kind of go into the foreground and then the picture cuts off at the foreground. I mean, that's some technical stuff. But I think the, the big thing is to ask yourself, do you, feel anything when you look at the photo and is it eliciting Mm. any kind of emotion that from looking at it not from your memory of being there but from looking at the photo so you know give yourself some space from it and then come back to it yeah so pay attention to how it makes you feel if it elicits any emotion and 
that's going to be, I think, your biggest factor on whether you're on to something. I was just going to say, you know, a couple of simple things, but again, it's technical and more compositional, but, you know, trying to emphasize eye contact is, I think, important, or at least like the direction that the eyes are moving or looking for the wildlife should be looking at something that's of visual interest if it's not at the camera. And then I think also giving enough breathing room of the direction the animal is facing. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense usually to have the animal like on the right-hand side of the frame looking out the right-hand side of the frame because then it's like what is the left telling unless there's something chasing it or something like that. So like those mm. kind of things are helpful. But uh, that – and then I guess the other thing I was going to think of is um, – I'm a big fan of like images that place put some context around the environment that the animal is in. So, you know, like if it's in the mountains or forests, like don't be afraid mm-hmm. to, you know, zoom out a little bit and show some of that context. Yeah. I and that's think all I that... got. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are good ones. And I think, you know, some of my favorite wildlife photos are ones where the animal is very small in the picture because it is more about it gives it gives more of a story of what the animal is experiencing in that moment. Um, and yeah, you know, think about like with the, if you have say an animal that's a cheetah or something that's down in the right hand corner and it's looking out the right side of the frame that can sometimes work. Like, especially if it's like, actually your purpose is to create tension or anticipation, you know, but know that that's a conscious thing that it's like you're making a decision and that's the feeling it's going to bring up. And is that the feeling that was actually present in that moment with, with that Mm. cheetah. And so make a decision on when you're going to break those rules because there, there are rules that elicit feelings of harmony or discord and you can use them to your advantage. And I do think that, you know, direct eye contact can be really, really powerful. And then sometimes it can get stale and boring. So you you want to have pictures where the animal's not looking at the camera. And it's like, oh, you got to kind of eavesdrop into their lives a little bit. You know, there's a little more mystery there. It It really runs the gamut of what works and what doesn't or, you know, which situation it works in. And I would say lighting is is a big thing too. You still want to have like that same kind of light you would take advantage of with landscapes, you know. And a lot of wildlife they they're more active during those hours too. So get out there at the edges of the day and see what's coming out and how they're they're living, and then try to make beautiful frames that make you feel something for that creature. You can use all of the rules of thirds and leading lines things like that, lots of times those will come in to your advantage. You can use, you know, I love the idea of the absence of light where it's almost like there's just one little spot of light and everything else is dark and you're highlighting, you're waiting for that moment when the animal moves into the spot of light. So you just ignore all the other photo ops until that animal moves into that shaft of light and then you make the frame, you know? Yeah, I love that. All right, well, you've talked also a lot about photojournalism and whatnot, but I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about what it means to you to showcase photographs 
in more of a fine art aesthetic. You know, we hear that word thrown out a lot, and I'd be curious to hear kind of your take on what that actually means. Yeah, I think one of the the best compliments I get is if someone tells me they think one of my photos looks like a painting, because I'm like, yes, I, I somehow like I I met that world of journalism and fine art in one image. You know, it was more painterly than just a snapshot. You know, um, so that's something I'm I'm always trying to pursue in pictures is really melding those two where you get a bit of a story, you get something revealed about someone, but it's also beautiful to look at. Um, so for me, I'd, I'd love for people to still want to hang what I photograph on their wall, even if it's of, you know, people doing something with wildlife. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with, with the fine art, work in general i i think there's so many opportunities to use fine art for conservation i mean you can create gallery exhibits around themes or tied to you know you let an environmental cause be your inspiration and you find non-literal ways of of depicting that through your images so and i think those kinds of things will kind of help shake people out of what they expect to see and then move them to want to linger with what you're sharing with them and then hopefully learn something about an issue that you care about. So yeah, I, I encourage the use of fine art wherever you can. I like to think, you know, about pictures being cinematic almost. And uh, I love the reaction from my subjects when they get to see pictures of them. Um, And they're like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that that's what the light looked like coming in through that window as I was doing this. You know, makes them look at their own jobs and uh, get more excited about what they're doing because they're like, oh, I actually feel like I'm a part of something. So, um, yeah. And I didn't realize that until I saw a picture of me doing it. Yeah. Nice. Got a couple, few more questions for you, Mo. Hopefully okay. that's what... You called yourself Mo, so I'm, go, I'm going with it. Go for uh, it, yeah. What, well, what is it like being on assignment for major publications? And maybe give us a couple examples. <laughs> um, it's both the funnest thing and the most terrifying thing and the most <laughs> exhausting thing. <laughs> And you're constantly questioning yourself, but um, I love it. You know, it, there's it's puzzles that you're constantly having to figure out. You plan things, you you try to do all your research, and then you get in the field, and you have to be prepared for everything to go out the window at any moment. So you have to be nimble. But it is, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. I, I get to meet the coolest people doing the craziest things and I'm constantly learning. And so I, I just, I really, really enjoy it. And it is talk about like figuring out how to maximize what you can do with limitations. You know, there's going to be limitations, especially with time, whether the assignment is short or you have to photograph a part of the story, but people only go out during parts of the day that are normally like, well, I don't want to photograph in that. You know, it's the light's really harsh. So you have to figure out ways to 
work with that light and still make good mm-hmm. storytelling frames that are very real and, and genuine to whoever you're photographing or whatever you're photographing. Yeah, so it keeps you on your toes. You have to be a good manager. You have to be creative. And you have to really think uh, diversely about the kinds of images to bring back to help flesh out that story and give your editors a variety of things to choose from because you could take 10 awesome shots of someone doing the same basic thing, but they're only going to use one of those in the story. So you need to have really diversified images to make sure that you're fulfilling the needs of your editors. Yeah. But it's, it's fun. It's in my editors are like my, my touchstones sometimes on assignments. Um, I'll, I'll send them little like, Depending on the assignment, I'll send them like little daily selects or something or just teasers to get them excited. Or I'll be like, hey, I had this idea about this thing. Do you want to workshop it with me? And it's really great when I get to have that opportunity to actually kind of brainstorm an image or an approach or just make sure that I'm on the right track with what they want. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of a matter of finding a balance of doing that some, but not doing it too much because they're busy. So you don't want to they hired you for a reason because they believe in what you're doing. So that's a lot of pressure. Cause it's like, right. you just want to make everybody I happy. Had, <laughs> I had, I, um, I did two big projects this year for a company. I was still working my full-time job. So I like my time was like super constricted and, but I, I needed the money like really bad so that I could transition into doing photography full-time. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do it. You know? And, and I, but I was super nervous about, you know, getting the right shots for them. And, you know, I even sent them a couple of samples like, is this kind of what you have in mind? And they're like, yeah, it looks good. But it was really reassuring when I talked to a friend of mine about the project who used to be the staff photographer for the Wilderness Society. His name's Mason Cummings. And um, he was like, you know, the best advice that I've heard people tell me is they don't see the images you don't take, right? So, like, mm-hmm. you know, they don't they don't know the images you walked by or the images that you didn't get right, things like that. So, you know, don't put that kind of stress on yourself. Like, you know, just focus on getting the images that you think are going to work best for the project. And, but you're Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) Trying to, um, you know, you have to roll with a lot of weird variables. Like they wanted me to photograph this, uh, this desert scene in Southeast Colorado in the middle of nowhere. And it was like this huge long drive and Mm -hmm. it snowed the whole way. And, as I was driving there, which I was not expecting at all. Um, and then I, my time was super limited. So I had to like basically photograph it at like, you know, 1 PM. Cause it was a 16 mile hike to get out to this spot. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just used an ND filter and like try to get a creative composition and eliminated most of the sky and it worked out fine. <laughs> yeah. There's, I think that what you just described is such a perfect example of of assignment photography because they you it's basically you are bringing back the best you can with the situation that you get to experience. And unless you've got unlimited time and budget, like that window is very tight, so you have to let go of of all the wrong notes that you played that only you hear and nobody else will, you know? And um, Mm -hmm. if you know that you've taken advantage of all of those limitations and 
done everything you can to make the best photo you can of that situation, like you've done your job, you know, that's the difference I think between assignment photography and something like a personal project where it's like, okay, well this trip, that's the picture I get. And it's a scouting trip for me. And I'm going to have to try to come back at some other time of year to get the actual photo that I have in my head, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah. And so you just, you make the most of what you're given basically. Yep. Yeah. And that for some people, I think that would be really hard to let go of that control. And I know it was for me too. Cause when they told me the time frame, you know, I was like, basically I had like two weeks to do it. And I knew that I only really had like three days. I'm like, man, I hope I get something. Cause, but at the end of the day, it's like, you got to get what you can get. You know, it's, yeah. it's not going to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like with a lot of photographers, they're happy if they get one, Im you know, they might work for days and they'll be happy if they get one image that they love, you know, and that's not even on assignment. That's right. just like in general. So remind yourself yeah. of that. Like it's a, it's a constant process and you can still make great images and images that you're proud of um, while you're on assignment, but you have to cut yourself some slack. You work so hard you get really creative. And I think lots of times you produce a higher quality work than you would expect given all those restrictions. And then when you have the opportunity to be crafting your own project on your own timeline, images there are that much stronger because you had to like mm -hmm. train like a mad athlete while doing this assignment work to make the most of the least, you know? And now you've got like totally. all these resources and you're like okay i'm going i'm gonna fly with this and this is gonna be right. amazing yeah 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 definitely all right i got three more questions for you uh the first one is how can we remove barriers for new and more diverse talent in our industry i think that anytime you can create opportunities for them whether it's connecting them with groups or mentors or being a mentor um, helping them learn a skill that you know maybe they're a photographer but they haven't really they want to photograph and shot a lot of wildlife or they want to photograph science but they don't have a science background you know help them kind of get comfortable with shooting those kinds of subjects. I think that you have to seek them out and they may not see how they connect. So, you know, not that long ago, I gave a presentation to at a general photojournalism seminar. Most of my audience was young and very diverse and a, several of them were interested in environmental issues, but they didn't photograph them and they didn't know how. And so I spent a lot of time talking with them about how to see the environmental angle in a sports story or uh, in, in a so, like a story linked with poverty. And then we would talk about shot lists and just trying to reframe the eye a little bit. And it's not about them changing what their beat or what they like to photograph, but just seeing how it fits into these other sides, these other stories. So 
anytime that you can offer that training if they don't have it or just connect them with opportunities so that they can get real actual work, get connected with editors, things like that. I think so much of it is about inviting them to the table and seeking them out. So I think that's one of the biggest things is Mm. really making sure that they know where the table is and that they're welcome to join it. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Tell us about your consultation services that people should know more about. Oh, yeah. So one of the hats that Give I wear, more I do, do. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need it. <laughs> I've got things I got to pay for. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like to offer a variety of online consultation. So I'll do portfolio reviews, whether it's a general portfolio review, or if you're putting together like a pitch for an editor, I'll help edit your portfolio for that. Um, I do larger consults that usually are like, you know, an hour long session. We often go over the hour length because we just have so much fun talking. And then we, we help strategize on things that you're working on. And there's different size packages that you can choose from that depending on whether you're working on a project and you want to have a few sessions or if you just want like a one-off session. So um, those are on my, you can find out about them on my website, morganheim.com or on my business site, neonravenlab.com. And uh, I occasionally offer bigger workshops and stuff like that too, or editing workshops, which are two day things. And they come in a range of prices. So I try to make them fairly affordable for people. I love, I get so much energy out of helping people kind of learn about the industry and learn, think about their projects differently and the logistics and actually how to make them happen. And, you know, a few strategies to try or, you know, goals to set and, and how to make their pitches stronger. Cause I want these, I want these stories to get out in the world. And I, I want more people to be the voices behind those stories. So I love it. That's awesome. All right. My last question is, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some individuals that inspire you or that we should learn more about? Yeah, I could give you a list of so many names, but I will, I will be good. I'll let myself to five. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I really recommend Esther Horvath. She is a concert. She's a science photographer and a conservation photographer. And she is someone who, if you want to think about like cinematic photojournalism of science, like her images are just, they look like they came out of a sci-fi movie, but they're real. And it, she's done such a great job of capturing the human side of scientists, the charm, the adventure, She's a really, really amazing photographer. There's Stephen David Johnson, who takes these just ethereal images of of creatures like the eggs of salamanders in a vernal pool. And he uses very painterly lighting techniques, but it's, it's quite simple. And he's also a teacher of conservation photography in Virginia and He's a delight to listen to, um, but his his images are just gorgeous, um, and they are things that you don't typically get to see. There's 
Mike, Mike Forsberg, he is just a master of melding storytelling and kind of fine art nature photography with basically like data visualization and science. And he covers subjects like whooping crane migration and the great plains like flyover country. He makes you want to go just like live in the tall grass prairie or the short grass prairie and in Nebraska and these places that most of us just like pass through as fast as we can on the way to someplace else. And he shows like how amazing and rich it is. And he's just got like a wonderful way of articulating things and voice. Um, he's just a, a great human. Dave Showalter is the same. He's, he's done this incredible work on the Colorado river and, you know, everyone talks about the Colorado, Colorado river is dying, but he views it as a living river still. And so that's the name of his book on the Colorado river is called the living river. And it's all about all the people working really hard to save this place that, you know, has been used so much by so many and, but he still finds hope in it and he's a beautiful photographer. And then, Oh gosh, there was another one that I wanted to mention. Jen Guyton. So Jen Guyton is just, an incredible talent. She's still fairly early in her career and she's done so much with the time that she's had. She's got a PhD in I think evolutionary ecology or biology. And she is someone who does a really great job with wildlife photojournalism. That's also extremely empathetic and under some crazy cool places all over Africa. She's done a lot of work in Gorongosa, just camera trapping. She's one of the few women who has done a, an assignment for National Geographic in natural history. And she did it as one of just a handful of places that she's had assignments. She's so early in her career, but she's just a rock star and she's so smart and her images are beautiful. So those are five people that I'd really it. recommend bringing on. You'd love talking to all of them. Awesome. Thank you, Morgan. And that's how I learned about you is someone on my podcast recommended you. So here we are. And I just, it's for me, it's such a wealth of uh, information that I can draw upon by asking people that question. And that's why I do it every single episode. So thank you for, good one. for sharing those people. <laughs> yeah. My pleasure. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Morgan. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun learning about your journey and your techniques and sharing your wisdom with us has been such a pleasure. And I just wanted to, to thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of fun. Yeah. And I can't wait to listen to more of your podcasts while I'm out there running with the dog on the trails. You really have helped me uh, log a lot of miles. So thank you for that. <laughs> Well, thank you to Mo for the fantastic conversation today on the show. I am very impressed with your work and your approach, and I'm really excited to see where you take things next. For those interested in Mo's virtual trainings and consultations, which I think would be a fantastic way to help you elevate your photojournalism career, she is offering podcast listeners a special limited time offer. 
Through January 2024, Mo is offering a 10% discount on these consultations. Listeners need to contact Mo directly through her website at morganheim.com and include the code FSTOPMO10. Also, make sure to identify which consultation you're interested in from her website. That's morganheim.com and the code is FSTOPMO10. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.